Hello everyone, I'm Brian Carrington and you're listening to Call Talk for September 17th, 2014. And today's topic is Call Center Law. Now, if you're listening live, I'd like to invite you to be a part of the show and ask questions. It's real easy. Here's how you can do it. You can either email me or call in. The email would be brian at benchmarkportal.com, spelled out B-R-I-A-N at benchmarkportal.com. Or if you're listening on the phone or close to one, you can call in at 347 857 3117. And then press the number one on your phone to let me know that you got a question and I can get you in. Again, that number, real quick, is 347 857 3117. So, also need to remind you that all of our shows are archived and available to listen to that at any time is convenient for you at our website, benchmarkportal.com. Just navigate to our archive section for Call Talk, and away you go. There's a lot of good stuff in there. But speaking of good stuff, let's get on our way for today's show. And I want to introduce you the host of Call Talk, Mr. Bruce Belfiore. Well, thank you very much, Brian. It's great to be back, and welcome back to Call Talk, everyone. Today's topic, as Brian mentioned, is call center law. And I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Amy Novak, who will help me grill our guests on items regarding legal issues in the call center. How are you doing today, Amy? I'm doing well, Bruce. Thank you. Okay. We should have a lot of fun today, huh? Yes. Cannot wait to grill Adam. Welcome, Adam. (laughs) Nice to be grilled. uh, Yes, yes, you will be grilled uh, on, on high heat. So uh, Adam uh, Losey is our esteemed guest today, and uh, really happy to be uh, welcoming him. Adam, uh, I hope you're happy to be here as well. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, and it sure beats being in court today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we'll see if we can put you under deposition anyway. Um Adam Losey is an internationally recognized attorney, author, and educator in the field of technology law, and he represents a number of Fortune 100 companies in high-stakes complex litigation across the country that involve a lot of challenging issues at the intersection of law and technology. And in addition to his litigation practice, uh, Adam routinely advises clients, large and small, on a variety of sophisticated information security, incident response, privacy, electronic discovery, and data management matters, all of which really do touch very much on the uh, call center area. Uh, Adam is a member of the New York, Florida, and District of Columbia bars. So, uh, Adam, I guess you're welcome in bars all up and down the East Coast, right? (laughs) I am, except for the ones where I have outstanding tabs. (laughs) Exactly. And and actually, I I don't admit this very often, but actually, I'm a brother lawyer myself. Uh, I'm a member of the uh, Connecticut Bar, so I only get to go into one. And uh, haven't practiced in years, but uh, remain a a member in good standing. And maybe I'm a member in good standing because I haven't practiced in years. (laughs) In any event... Uh, Adam, you know, let, let's dive right into it. So what are some of the top legal issues and pitfalls that you see call centers falling into? Well, it's interesting because, you know, in, in my uh, uh, very flattering bio that you read, a lot of those issues at the intersection of law and technology arise when representing call centers. Um, oh, and also I have to, I think, you know, there's a lawyer rule before a lawyer can ever talk on a radio show, they have to give the disclaimer that I'm about to give, which is nothing 
I'm talking about here is direct legal advice, and everything I say or is my opinion and my analysis of some of these issues, not necessarily those of the firm that employs me. I forgot about that at the beginning. Um, but the, the biggest legal issue and pitfall, the real hot one right now, has to do with privacy and something called SIPA. Have you ever heard of, of the acronym SIPA? Yes. The California Invasion of Privacy Act is, is the one that uh, we see it come up with a lot with call centers. And some folks kind of viewed this as an arcane portion of the California Penal Code that was enacted a long time ago. But lately, it has really uh, been utilized a lot by plaintiff's lawyers in California. And, and the real simple version of SIPA is it prohibits doing things like recording a telephone call when somebody doesn't consent to it being recorded or doesn't have an objectively reasonable expectation of privacy. So, you know, if I just call you up on the telephone and I'm talking to you and record it, uh, SIPA prohibits me from doing that. California is a two-party or all-party consent state. And as many of your listeners may know, not every state is like that. Some states, uh, just one person needs to know. But California has a lot of law that drags out-of-state companies in if they call anybody in California. And if you're operating a national business or a national call center, you're frequently calling to California. And SIPA is kind of a big deal because the statute provides for $5,000 in statutory damages or I think double or treble actual damages uh, for recording one of these calls when you don't have consent. And there's been some case law saying even if you suffered no damages whatsoever, uh, you might be liable for $5,000 a pop. You can see, of course, how this can be a big problem. If you get uh, 1,000 calls and you don't provide the consent warning, then that's $5 million, right? Or, or 10,000 calls, you've got $50 million on the line. So there's, there's very, very high exposure um, for SIPA violations. And you see them a lot in weird contexts. Uh, for example, tu hablo espanol, Bruce. Uh, sí, un poquito. Yo hablo más uh, <laughs> italiano. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, tu par parles français. Oui. Oh, geez. You speak every... Erigo gawa, cariwaka. No. <laughs> okay, all right. So we've got, we've got a language that you don't, don't speak. So if I play a consent message to you in Japanese, and it's t the typical, this call may be monitored or recorded for quality control services, and you stay on the line, if it's in Japanese have you really consented, right? And, and the same can happen frequently in United States-based call centers where you have an English-language consent message, uh, but then you have folks calling in that speak Spanish or Japanese or other languages, um, a lot of times with outgoing call systems. And this is something you kind of get used to representing call uh, centers. There can sometimes be a disconnect between the actual uh, IT functions, what's actually happening with the call recording and what management or other folks may think is happening. Like a lot of right. systems will record incoming and outgoing calls when you've got a consent message that's only being played for incoming calls. And nobody may know that until right. somebody sues. And so, right. you know, it, it's huge, huge damages. It's a very, very popular uh, lawsuit for plaintiff's lawyers to bring in California uh, because, again, big statutory damages – uh, typically a lot of money at stake. Um, so that's the number one hot legal issue and pitfall I see more than anything else. Uh, and I recommend call centers, anybody uh, of any size that ever deals with anybody in California, um, take a look at SIPA and take a look at your systems and make sure that you're not uh, exposing yourself to a lawsuit. 
Well, I, you know, I think that's really important, and, and you use the word disconnect there, which sort of found it, sounded a little funny in this context, but actually, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it, it, it's no laughing matter. You're absolutely right, and I think what our listeners need to think about is that even if you're not in California, if you're taking calls from California, if you're making calls to California, or another state that may pick up the same uh, legislation and do the same thing, uh, even if you're calling uh, from Canada or you're dealing from Canada but dealing with Californians, then you have to keep this in mind because it could uh, come around and bite you. And the connect you need to have between your IT people, uh, your ingoing, uh, your outgoing people, et cetera, so that you have the bases covered is extremely important. And uh, I think you, you laid it out very well there, Adam, that uh, it's something that uh, we as managers, and most of the people who listen to this show are call center managers, um, we, we, we sometimes, or call center managers want to hide from certain issues. Uh, te technology oftentimes scares them, finance scares them, and the law scares them. And one of the things that we try to do through this program and through other things we do is, uh, you know, some tough love messages, which are, no, you know, you really do need to understand this. It's important to your job and uh, for the benefit of your company that you do understand it. So uh, thank you very much for, for laying that out. Um, and, uh, you know, are, are there other states also that uh, seem to be getting on this bandwagon at this point? Sure. Well, Florida actually has a similar law with a much lower statutory damages cap. I think it's $1,000. Um, Illinois was a two-party consent state. Now there is no law in Illinois on recording other than the general one-party federal law because of a weird Illinois Supreme Court decision. But uh, a lot of states are uh, two-party consent and are moving towards this. And I can tell you as a privacy practitioner, the general trend nationally is more and more legislation on privacy uh, on the state level that penalizes people for making mistakes. Um, so yeah, certainly, even if you're not calling into California, it's something you should worry about. And, you know, I love how you say that the ostrich approach, as I call it, putting the head in the sand, mm -hmm. uh, SIPA and other things, that is, it is very, very dangerous because it's such a big landmine, right? Like some legal things, if you don't pay great attention to them, sure, it makes lawyers like me go crazy, but it's not like a business-ending consequence. For major SIPA violations, it is a business-ending consequence in some ways. I mean, it's you can easily get to the uh, you know eight nine figure damages amounts, which will shut a lot of call centers down. Mm, mm, wow. Okay. So there, there's a warning out there. If if you take nothing else away from this uh, this show, and I'm sure there's much else that you will, uh, keep that in mind. You have that uh, have your antennae up to uh, these sensitive issues. Uh, are there any other um, things that call center managers should be aware of when establishing their monitoring recording? Uh, data management policies, in addition to the things that you've just talked about, uh, Adam? Yeah, and, and I mean, part of the frustration when you, you have a client that has a lot of liability here is some of, the, some of the fixes to make sure that there's consent and things are managed correctly are actually pretty easy if you just pay attention to them. Uh, so for incoming calls, it's fairly easy to manage. You just need your standard, this call may be monitored or recorded for quality control purposes, uh, or something to that effect. There's no special magic about those words. And make sure that it jives with the language. That is a very common point that people overlook. So if you have Spanish-speaking reps, uh, at least have part of their training be they give the consent message in Spanish. Uh, for outgoing calls, it's, it's really tricky. Um, and there's a lot of 
policies and ways to do it. You can have an automated recording for the outgoing calls, but how do you address issues like, you know, if they're calling someone in Hungarian? Uh, is your outgoing call message going to play all those languages, or are you going to train the reps up? So outgoing calls, I'm typically less comfortable with uh, recording unless you have good policies in place. Incoming is a little bit uh, easier. And again, it's just really important to make sure that your IT folks talk to your business folks who talk to the legal folks and that everybody's part of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Adam, actually I have um, a couple questions for you, but before I ask, I wanted to um, preface that with this show is actually being recorded for quality and control purposes. And so before I go ahead and ask my question, I wanted to make certain you are well aware you're being recorded. Sure, and, and this is a great example of, of an objectively reasonable expectation of privacy. Since I'm on a radio show, and there was a little message at the beginning saying that I was uh, calling into a radio show, even though there wasn't a consent message, I can bet dime to a dollar if a California court uh, saw me suing for this, they'd say, no, you didn't have an objectively reasonable expectation of privacy when you called into a radio show. So again, there's no magic in the language, but if you get a cold call from somebody saying, hi, I'm calling from X company about whatever, uh, you know, a lot of California courts would say, yes, you have an objectively reasonable expectation of privacy if you get a call like that as opposed to calling into a radio show. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like uh, getting on a bus. You have uh, you don't have a reasonable expectation that uh, nobody might uh, you know touch you or, or bump into you or something like that. You're getting on a bus. You know that might happen. You're assuming that responsibility when you do it, uh, and, and it's very different than if uh, you know there's a situation where you have a reasonable expectation of the privacy, and uh, then that's somehow violated. So yeah, back over to you, Amy. Thank you, Bruce. Adam. Um, as you are in the process of working with potential clients that are contact call centers, are there any items, obviously, which you could share that could be a standout or um, a potential legal risk that may not necessarily be thought of proactively when a contact or call center is uh, planning to implement processes? Sure. And, and the big other one in the tech space, aside from privacy is kind of a corollary of privacy, information security. Uh, Call centers will often handle a lot of what uh, the legal term of art is personally identifiable information or protected health information, PII or PHI, uh, one of which is governed by HIPAA, the other of which is governed by the smorgasbord of state laws about data breaches. Um, Essentially, the the CliffsNotes version is almost every state in the union uh, has a law about what, what you need to do and what has to happen if you have unauthorized access to personally identifiable information. Stuff like social security numbers, uh, credit card information, if it's coupled with something else that enables access like a PIN number, uh, things like that. And if that information gets out, you can actually have pretty huge liability. Um, not necessarily only to the consumers and customers, but the process of going through the breach notification is really expensive, and so is the process of breach remediation, meaning you know, you, you typically hire a lawyer like me to help with the legal issues. You hire an IT uh, or crisis management uh, group to come in and help you fix the breach. Uh, frequently, honestly, in the context of call centers, it's, uh, it can often be an employee 
that has you know taken credit card numbers or done something like this a bad egg so to speak rather than an actual mm-hmm. penetration through uh, cyber uh, intrusion you know actually what you think of is true hacking and another common mm-hmm. thing is social engineering you know somebody is, is somehow able to trick a call center operative into giving out personally identifiable information or other information uh, the way that you can handle that's pretty uh, Pretty basic and, and pretty intuitive, one of which is, is training, right? I mean, that's how you prevent social engineering. Um, you know, you, you let people know uh, what to expect, and you prevent them from giving out the information. Two is simply limiting what you store and what you have. You know, there are, as uh, in a situation before, a call center specifically made sure that the call center did not manage any personally identifiable information. They didn't want any of it. Uh, because they didn't want the liability for keeping it safe. And they tokenized things, meaning, you know, you could take Social Security numbers or credit card numbers and turn them into um, an alphanumeric prefix, a bunch of numbers and letters that are actually unrelated to the uh, original credit card number. And, and it's called tokenization is the process in which you do that. Uh, so so you can do things to prevent it. But even, even then, uh, something a lot of call centers and a lot of businesses do is get – what is typically called cyber risk insurance, where a lot of insurances, insurance companies will provide uh, insurance to pay the cost of remediation, the cost of notification, all kinds of things like that. And, and what should trigger this a lot for a lot of call centers, frankly, having negotiated some of these contracts, if, if you're using an outside call center and you're giving them personally identifiable information or, or health information or they're managing something sensitive, a common demand which some clients will not budge on, um, is mm-hmm. if the call center is going to handle it, I want them to indemnify me, meaning if something happens at the call center, like an employee takes this information and uses it or you know, they have a breach, I want the call center to bear the cost associated with whatever happened at the call center, which makes, makes sense, right? You know, if yeah. I'm going to give you this information, if something goes wrong, I want you to pay for it. Now, indemnity in itself just kind of buys you a lawsuit a lot of times because – you know, if I indemnify you and I say I'll pay for it, well, what if I don't have any money? Uh, so a lot of these contracts also will require the call center to have cyber risk insurance and to allow the contracting party to collect directly from the insurer as a named beneficiary, meaning you indemnify me if something goes wrong, and also you get insurance and you name me as a beneficiary so I know that I'm covered in the event of a breach. And that, that's... Mm-hmm. At least in my anecdotal experience, that's a fairly new thing, and it, it's something a lot of people don't bug, uh, budge on a lot because, you know, you've seen Target, you've seen a lot of other companies that have had these huge data breaches that not only are expensive, but they kill them um, in the PR perspective. I mean, it, it's rightly or wrongly hurt their image, and the breaches rarely come about at the company. Target's was through an HVAC vendor. Did you know that? Uh, from, I had no involvement with the actual breach remediation. I've just read uh, in publicly available media that the entry vector, you know, where they got into Target was through their air conditioning or a air conditioning vendor. So you oh, see a lot of vendors are the, are the vector point for big breaches. And so because of that, most big companies are very sensitive to making sure uh, that they're protected. If, you know, a call center or another vendor has some kind of a, a breach. And, and just the way call centers are, a lot of them do have to handle this kind of protected information. Well, you do bring up um, a few great points there um, when call centers are looking at implementing processes with 
um, data that is sensitive in nature that you brought up for the PHI information. It's just making certain if they can limit what they're storing and or what they're providing visually to their agents to, you know, consider that, make certain they have that proper training. But a new item even to myself is that cyber risk insurance. And so I'm certain those managers that are listening to this um, session of Call Talk will, you know, most likely want to take a look into that at their um, shops internally to see if they have that cyber risk insurance. So that that is a um, nice little tidbit there uh, for folks to go ahead and take a look at to that next level to ensure they have that proper, you know, coverage uh, legally. And another thing, Oops. too, is sometimes, and I should clarify, there are some umbrella policies that might name it, but more typically there are very specific cyber risk policies that have, you know, a typical small policy will have, you know, about a million dollars to, you know, upwards of $50 million in coverage for all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. There's uh, also an article that we did in um, a Contact Center 101 uh, article that we did on uh, data architecture security issues uh, that was written with uh, an expert named Tony Grimshaw. And um, he brought up some of the same issues that you're bringing up, uh, Adam, and that are really very important. And again, that uh, sometimes we want to stick our head in the sand, but we shouldn't. Uh, we don't have to become experts. You know, people, nobody's asking you to become, uh, you know, a expert on the level of Adam Losey. But on the other hand, if you're familiar with the issues and can actually, uh, you know, deal with those issues with your company and uh, with your colleagues, then you'll be more of an asset to your company overall. And uh, it will help also with, with the risk management aspects of your, your call center and your company. Um, one of the things that I've seen in the past, for instance, is that um, the risk management component of what call centers do is oftentimes undervalued. And because it's undervalued, it's not properly uh, optimized. So uh, there was one center, for instance, dealing with uh, very dangerous chemicals, uh, they would get uh, calls every once in a while from somebody who spilled those chemicals, didn't know what to do because they hadn't properly prepared. And, and that call center uh, probably saved the reputation and the treasury of that company, you know, tons because of the fact that they really did know how to respond very well. And, uh, so, and that brings in also the idea of training, training for your people. Your people are the ones at the end of the day who are going to be operative using your management, uh, your knowledge management systems, who are going to be able to implement uh, whatever it is in terms of knowledge and in terms of policies that are important. Adam, maybe you could tell us a little bit from your experience. Um, when we train our people, for instance, in these policies that have to do with HIPAA, PII, et cetera, that should all be well documented, shouldn't it? And that the... Um, the fact that we have a curriculum for it should be, you know, kept so that it, it can be used in the future to, to prove that we, we did certain things uh, it, it, that may help out in terms of um, our company's litigation and, in, in fact, in terms of our own jobs. Did, would you want to comment on that at all? I, I agree, absolutely. And I'd even go further than that and say, you know, depending on what you're doing, you know, if you're a merchant accepting credit cards, for example, you need to be PCI compliant if you've ever heard of that uh, acronym. And it's one of many things where there are requirements um, 
mostly contractual requirements. PCI is in the context of various contracts with uh, payment processors and banks that actually require you to, to take certain measures regarding data security. So on top of it being a good idea, you know, a lot of businesses sometimes will uh, <laughs> suddenly realize with the demand letter that, oh gosh, you know, we're, we're under a microscope to see what we're doing for data security and for our policies because there's a contract we've signed that requires us to do it that we never really paid attention to. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And then one quick comment, too, I'd make earlier talking about the risk management being on the back end. I think an important business consideration is that how you manage risk and how you handle these issues can actually be a really good marketing tool. I've seen some call centers uh, market very successfully by focusing uh, on companies that they know are attuned to these issues. Data security is, is a big issue now, a business issue for most companies. And if they're trying to get business from a big company, an effective marketing technique is to tell and show them how well you handle data security, and we are not going to be the attack vector where someone gets access to your information and will indemnify you and will back it up with insurance if you want. So it can be an effective marketing tool as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, take what is a, a potential problem and turn it into, in fact, an asset for you in your uh, quest to get business, particularly on the part of uh, outsourcers in this case, I would think. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Well, um, Adam, I did have one other question, if you don't mind. And um, for those that are listening in who may be, you know, managing or overseeing call center operations, I was hoping we might be able to provide, with your expertise, one legal tip, if you can think of, you can summarize down to one, one legal tip you could provide these folks that are listening in, um, what would that be? as it relates to overseeing a call center operation? It's so hard to choose only one, and, and like a typical lawyer, I, I have to hedge a little and say there are two that are really important, but if, one had to, if I had to pick one, it's be careful with your contracts and read your contracts. Um, you know, as mentioned before, you may have requirements in boilerplate contracts and other things that you want to be aware of and you want to pay close attention to any contracts that you're signing. So I've seen, you know, occasionally perhaps not having a lawyer review a contract can lead to pretty big consequences later on. So be careful with your contracts is number one, but a very close second that I haven't touched on is be wary of wage and hour laws and make sure to comply with them. And we don't have enough time to get into them uh, in too much detail, um, but the Fair Labor Standards Act, you know, minimum wage laws, thing, things about overtime, um, you see a lot of litigation in that context with call centers. Um, a whole lot of overtime litigation, a lot of things where attorney's fees are in play. Uh, and Bruce, as you know, when someone gets attorney's fees, it's a lot easier to find a lawyer to sue on your behalf. Um, yes. <laughs> so, so attorney's fees are in play, you know, sometimes double or treble damages, uh, and even in sometimes with FLSA violations, you can pierce the corporate veil of a company, meaning you can go after uh, the owner of the company rather than a company in some situations. And I'll punt to Google on this in that, if you Google fact sheet number 64, call centers, uh, you'll get a, a very little document, brief, concise document from the United States Department of Labor, Wage and Hour Division, designed specifically for call centers to give information about the FLSA. Uh, and it's, it's definitely worth a quick, it's two-page document, worth a good read. Um, you know, one of the more common things I see is uh, the use of unpaid interns. Um, while the use of unpaid interns isn't prohibited uh, per se, it frequently 
you can't have an intern and not pay them anything uh, unless these very specific conditions are met. And it's often a lot cheaper to pay an intern minimum wage than it is to deal with, you know, potential lawsuits later on. So that's my wordy answer. No, that's good. That's, that's well, a great, great answer. And uh, yeah. actually, Brian, before we started, wasn't there a one tip that you had uh, with regard to the law? Well, yeah, it actually came in as a question from uh, Doc Holliday, and he, he asked, is it good advice <laughs> that you should only break one law at a time? <laughs> Doc Holliday. <laughs> well, I'll be your huckleberry. All right. <laughs> good, good. Well, with, with that, do we have any uh, questions from the audience? I think we may have time for one or two, uh, Brian. Yes, we do. We do. So back back to being serious here, um, at which, Adam, you, you didn't really answer the question, though, first. And we're, we're to grill you, so come on. <laughs> uh, no, it's not okay to break the law, although I will say it's better to break less laws than more laws, certainly. I think that's a fair statement. <laughs> okay. But don't break any laws. Okay. That's my advice. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, how much did that PC cost guy. us? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, because it's not legal advice. <laughs> That's right. Okay. <laughs> Just opinions. Okay. Um. Here, here's a good question. I'll, I'll be serious now. Uh, from Bill. Legally, how long do you have to retain call recordings? Uh, that is a, a great question, Jill. And and. Uh, it depends, which is the classic lawyer answer, but I can give some, some better specifics. Uh, for example, when you reasonably anticipate litigation, if somebody calls in and says, I'm suing you, there's a common law duty in the United States uh, and in England to some extent to keep that kind of information. So anything that threatens a lawsuit or litigation, you need to hang on to that until that's resolved. There's no set time period. Uh, there's also a number of other uh, statutory regulations regarding uh, things like protected health information and financial information where you might need to keep uh, recordings for a certain period of time ranging from uh, one to two years to, in the case of employee medical records, for example, although this really wouldn't be a call recording, but there's a, a requirement that you keep employee medical records for 30 years. So uh, there's all kinds of statutory and common law um, retention periods, and the typical way that most call centers handle it is they have a default retention period. So, you know, we'll keep calls for X amount of months um, or X amount of weeks, and then if we need to save it for a specific reason, it'll get flagged and moved to archival storage or somewhere else. Okay, good. Uh, looks like I've got one more we can try to sneak in here, and this one comes from Kevin. Kevin asks, uh, what are the agents, reps, CSRs, and specialists' rights as far as it relates to telephone monitoring? Well, rights-wise, generally employees uh, don't really have objectively reasonable expectations of privacy in workplace communications. Uh, but again, it kind of depends on the facts and the jurisdiction. Um, most employers, and, and a good thing for call centers to do, is to have employees, independent contractors, anybody whose calls are being recorded or monitored, sign something or to have something in your policy handbook where they acknowledge that, and they acknowledge, hey, if I'm using email at work or a phone at work, um, I don't have an expectation of privacy there. Uh, the rules can be a little, actually a lot different um, in Europe and Asia, but generally here uh, you don't have a fundamental right or constitutional right to privacy uh, in workplace communications. Okay. Well, great. I, I think we've uh, unfortunately come to the end of our show here because of the passage of time, but 
Adam, really, uh, thank you very much. This has been a, a great fact-filled, information-filled session, and we really appreciate you taking the time to come and join us today. My pleasure. I've had a lot of fun and uh, enjoyed meeting everybody. Okay, and with that, yeah. Okay, with that, uh, Amy and I will turn it back over to Brian. All right. Thanks, you guys, and uh, and Adam. Really, thank you. Uh, that was really, uh, really a lot of good, great discussion there. So appreciate you being on the show and uh, some of the uh, good questions from Bruce and Amy. As always, uh, we're going to be back again next month. I want to invite you to join us right here again. Uh, it's going to be October fifteenth, where we're going to talk about quality transformation. It's a little different topic. Also, want to remind you to sign up for a free benchmark report that you can get from us here at benchmarkworld.com and also uh, make sure that you check out to see how good you're doing compared to others in the industry. That's what that Benchmark Portal is really all about. So from all of us here at Benchmark Portal, keep those headsets steady, your fingers ready, and the law on your side. All right, this is Brian Carrington signing out. Have a great day. That's it. Have a great day. I've always.